Ready. Good morning, all you daylight savers, you crazy kooks. Woo! We encourage you to take your first steps into this life-giving local church and find the community and the support that you've been hoping for. Would you stop by at Mayo High School for one of our services at 9.15 and 10.45 a.m. on Sundays? We'd love to meet you. We sure would. We hope that you will find Echo to be your place, your people, and your purpose. It can it all can be found in one space. It's what we are all looking for. You struggled there. That was a hard one. Okay. We want to invite you to join us for Easter, Ho! April 9th, Resurrection Sunday. We'd love to have you and your children participate in these epic celebration services. Oh, man, look out. Last week, our kids brought their giving bricks in and raised 14.4 pounds of change, or $199. We want to say thank you to our children as they invest into our permanency within Rochester. Here's a cool idea. You I'm, ready? I'm ready for it. Would you consider matching what they gave last week into our Here to Stay campaign as we continue to save and prepare for a permanent location here in Rochester? Man, if you are looking to give, Head to our website or simply Venmo us at We Are The Echo Church. Enjoy the online service. Look out, here it comes. Oh boy.
spouses is definitely worth contending for. Today, I'm going to go back and look at Jacob's relationship, not with his spouse, but with his brother, Esau. So there's a powerful key that, almost a magical key, that will work in our relationships with our spouse, with our brothers, with our sisters, with our fathers or our mothers, or just about anybody that, we're con- that, that is worth contending for. This powerful key that I want to talk about today can take a relationship that is on the brink of disaster, take a relationship that is odiously bad and can heal it, flat out change it for, for good forever. Do you know what I'm talking about this morning? I'm talking about forgiveness. And forgiveness is the key that healed Jacob's and Esau's relationship with brothers. So the story of Isaac and Rebekah and their twin sons, by the way, Esau and Jacob, is found, well, it really starts out heavy in Genesis 25 and and really goes to the end of the, uh, almost the end of the book of Genesis. Genesis 25, verse 27 says, the boys grew up. And Esau, the the oldest one, became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was a quiet man, staying among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau. And Rebekah loved Jacob. Now, What is wrong with that statement right there? You know, I mean, there's something seriously wrong with that. Parents are not supposed to say they favor one over the other. And they're, and they're certainly not supposed to say they love one and don't really love the other. Their father Isaac favored Esau, but it was for a good reason. Esau was a hunter. And he made great soup, you know. And Isaac, his father, really liked his soup, so therefore he liked him better. Come on. I know he was a biblical patriarch, but there's one word that comes to mind. My wife doesn't like it when I say this word and another word that I'm going to say in a little while. For the mother, but the father, Isaac, was a real knucklehead. You you just don't love one child over the other one. In chapter 27, we have the story of the birthright. In in ancient Israel, the birthright was the right of the firstborn to inherit the father's possessions and especially his authority. All of the sons received something from their father, property, whatever, whatever. But the firstborn received a double portion, and he became the leader of the family. Now, 
Isaac, the father, told Esau, his oldest son, in chapter 27, verse number 3, to go out and hunt wild game and make some soup or a stew or pottage or porridge, whatever you want to call it. And so Isaac was nearly blind, and soon he was going to die. And he wanted to give Esau, his eldest son, his blessing. So in, in verse number 5 of chapter 27, Isaac's wife, Rebekah, was eavesdropping. And she said to the son that she loved, Jacob, in verse 8, Now, my son, listen carefully and do what exactly as I tell you. Go out to the flock and bring me two choice young goats so that I can prepare a taste, some tasty food for your father just the way he likes it. Then take it to your father so that he may give you his blessing before he dies instead of giving it to Esau, his oldest, his eldest. Um, essentially, what Rebecca was saying, let's cheat Esau. You already have his birthright. He sold it willingly to Jacob for a pot of porridge. Now let's cheat Esau out of his blessing. Come on, Jacob, we can do this. What a mom, huh? <laughs> kind of makes you proud. Verse number 11, Jacob points out that he has smooth skin and Esau is hairy. <laughs> what, a, what a way to put it, you know. And Rebecca fixes that by covering his hands, his arms, and his neck with goat skin so that when Isaac is going to feel Oh, I, this is Esau. I feel, I feel all the hair. And uh, her scheme worked perfectly. And Isaac ended up giving the blessing that he meant to give to Esau. He gave it to Jacob. He was conned by his wife. Poor Jacob. He had a mother who taught him how to be deceptive. Now, because it's not very kind to call a woman a knucklehead, I'll just say that his mother was a lemon. How, how's that? Is that sweet and kind? <laughs> Poor Jacob, his father, Isaac, was a knucklehead, and his mother, Rebecca, was a lemon. No wonder what Pastor Andy says, that Jacob was one of the most relationally challenged persons in the entire Bible. So let's just call it what it really is. They were sinners. <laughs> and what do you expect sinners to do? What? Sin. Very good. <laughs> and so, aren't you glad that the Bible doesn't sugarcoat sin? Otherwise, we would be saying, well, I don't know what's wrong with Jacob. He had a perfect father and a perfect mother. And he turns out to be this conniving, cheating, deceptive person. 
Well, the Bible tells it like it is. The apple certainly didn't fall far from the tree when Jacob came along. Some more things that are said here. Genesis 25, verse 33. Jacob cheated Esau out of his birthright. I should say he sold willingly his birthright to Jacob for a pot of porridge. Genesis 27, verse 34 says, Jacob cheated Esau out of his blessing. Genesis 27, verse 35. This is what Esau says. Isn't he rightly named Jacob, which means deceiver? He has deceived me two times. He took my birthright, and now he has taken my blessing. I wish I would read more scripture verses because Esau just weeps and cries and begs his father, don't you have another blessing for me? So that in in chapter 27, verse 41, Esau, it says this, Esau held a grudge against Jacob because the blessing his father had given him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. And wow. Thanks, Mom, for teaching me how to be deceptive. In the words of Laurel and Hardy, didn't they say, this is another fine mess you've gotten me into, Ollie. (laughs) Now, I want to look at the great part, okay? That's enough junk. It's enough about sin. Um, Because now I want to look at that key that I talked about that is going to change entirely their relationship from one of hatred, wanting to kill, one of deceit, conniving, and it's found in Genesis 33, Verses 1 through 4. This would be our text for today. Verse 1. Jacob looked up, and he was told that his brother Esau was coming. Jacob looked up, and there was Esau coming with 400 men. So he decided, uh, divided his children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants that he also had children with. You know, he was quite a guy. And uh, he put the female servants and their children in front, thinking if, Jason, if Esau starts killing people, maybe he can get away with the wives or, or something. And, and then Leah and her children next, and finally Rachel and Joseph in the rear. Verse number three of chapter 33. He himself went on ahead, bowed down to the ground, seven times as he approached his brother. And what was that saying? Wow. He was showing respect. He was really asking for forgiveness. But verse number four is the best verse of the day. Listen to this. What a sweet verse. But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck And he kissed his brother Jacob, and they wept together. Now, it doesn't get any better than that, does it? 
I mean, you think your brother is coming with an army of 400 people to kill you. And look what happened. Throw their arms around their neck, kiss each other, and weep together. Esau takes the lead in this whole thing. Why was Esau intent upon asking, uh, showing forgiveness to Jacob? Well, I think it's partly because God had blessed his socks off. He has everything he needs. And when Jacob offers him all these animals, all these sheep, these goats, these cows, camels, what does Esau say? Keep it. I don't need it. God has already blessed me. Plus, really, this was the bottom line. Esau didn't want Jacob's gifts. Esau wanted his brother back. And and the key to getting his brother back was forgiveness. And so Jacob um, is extended forgiveness from his brother Esau, who he had only done dirt to. What a beautiful moment when Esau gives that to Jacob. But the question is, can that type of forgiveness happen today in our world, or is this just something that happens in the Bible? Well, I want to tell you my story of forgiveness. I'm the oldest of six children, uh, all of us pretty much one year apart. We grew up in the peaceful little town of Shawano, Wisconsin, but our childhood was anything but peaceful. Um, our father was alcoholic. And I see these slick ads on TV trying to sell this drink and that drink, and I'm, I'm going, wow, I, I could show the other side of that. More than once, my dad drank up the entire paycheck for a week. How do you think that made my mom feel? Um, he got paid on Friday straight to the bar, no money left. Imagine a 27-year-old mother with no, with zero money left for food. I'll tell you one story. Things were getting worse between my mom and my dad, and my dad's, mostly my dad's drinking. The bars, you know, were closed. Dad came home, told her again that he had drank up the entire paycheck, and she, I, my bedroom was the living room and on the Davenport, so I would always hear everything, and I was the oldest. I, I got up, and uh, right in time to see Mom pour a bowl of chili over his head, <laughs> you know. She was this feisty little 103-pound woman, and Dad didn't strike her or anything, but he just moved her over to the door and forced her out into the garage. Now, at least she was in the garage, but she got up and came out to talk to him in her, can I say this from the pulpit, in her bra and panties. And uh, so, yes, I can, because last, was it last week Andy said the word fart? (laughs) (laughs) So I can say those two words. And uh, so I got this great idea that if I went out there with her, Dad would surely let us both back in because he loved me. I felt like I was the apple of his eye. 
But he locked the door behind me, and we pounded and pounded and pounded. It was early in winter. There were about three inches of fresh snow. There we were, both barefoot, me and my PJs. And uh, Mom finally concluded he is not going to open the door. So we had to walk to the neighbors across the street, go way to their back door, and pounded and pounded on their door and pounded and pounded and pounded and pounded on their door. And it was cold. And finally, John Jarek comes to the door, looks out the window, sees my mother, and disappears. I mean, he's gone. What he did was get his wife. Ruth had a big blanket, put us both in that blanket, each a blanket. And... uh, so I remember it was a very awkward discussion, like, wow, my husband, husband doesn't kick me out in the middle of the night, you know. And, uh, I, but I'll never forget her kindness to us that night. Uh, eventually, Mom said, I, I'll bet he's sleeping, but I bet he left the door open. We walked over, and sure enough, that was the case. But everything came to a head on New Year's Eve 1956, when my father did something that he never would have done had he not been stone drunk. That's another thing that I learned that you don't want to learn as a child. I learned the difference between, you know, when my dad drank beer, he got mellow. If he, if he drank one beer out of that case, he would drink the 23 next ones out of that case. And he, but when he would drink whiskey, he would get mean. And I could smell the difference. At a young age, and it was an awful awful thing for a child to have to know. That night, my father beat a man to death in a drunken brawl. And there come comes with that a whole list of other icky things in not only his life, but his wife's life and his children's life. Watching your father be handcuffed and taken away by authorities. Having your family name plastered in the largest letters that the newspaper probably ever printed. Week after week after week and month after month, your name was there. The shame of going into a store and immediately having everybody going, that must be the Khaleesi's over there. And the, the shame of going back to school after, after New Year's break and everyone staring at you, not knowing really what to say. And then there was the poverty you know, very, very meager county assistance. And the visits to the state penitentiary when I kept putting, sounding off the machine that wouldn't let me go in to see Dad because I had a nickel way down in my pocket down here. An Indian head nickel. <laughs> it's worth some money. So some of my brothers and sisters had a much harder time than I did. Once I was in the bathroom at school And Danny Schumacher comes running up to uh, uh, me and says, hey, didn't your dad kill somebody? And Tom Crawl picked him up by the left elbow and 
Bill Timke picked him up by the right elbow and his little feet did the Fred Flintstone shuffle, you know. And uh, they took him outside the louvered door, not knowing I could hear everything perfectly. And they said, that was not Bruce's fault. Don't you ever say something like that again. I had friends that really kind of watched my back. My sister Vicky didn't. She did not get invited to the, to the popular girl in the class to her birthday party. But there was a little Native American girl that didn't get invited to the birthday party either. And my mother said to my sister, how do you make something positive out of that? Well, my mother could. She said, isn't it nice that that little Native American girl wasn't the only one who wasn't invited to the party? So I visited my mom last week. She's 94 years old, just moved out of her house into my sister's house. And her, her, one of her friends stopped by, and my mom did her taxes at, at night. 94 years old. Ay, ay, ay. God has really blessed her, but her short-term memory is going. So is mine. But my mother used to tell me when I was in, in elementary school, Bruce, you would forget your head if it wasn't attached to your body. So that kind of makes me feel good. <laughs> I've been forgetful for a long time. <laughs> I, all in all, I fared quite well um, when my dad was released from prison, but he was still on probation, which meant if he drank or did anything screwy, he'd go right back into the state penitentiary. So we moved to a new town, Menasha, about 50 miles away in 1961. I'm sure you can all remember that year. That was, I was in the sixth grade and it was my best year ever. All brand new friends, dad on probation, couldn't drink for three years. We bought a house, we took a vacation to the West Coast, did things that other people did, you know. My dad would take me trout fishing whenever I would ask him to. We'd always stop off and see grandma who I loved. Things were great for those three years. And I vividly remember the day he took his first drink and he bought a big bottle of whiskey for the people that let us fish on their land and I caught my first uh, I'd caught many trout before but this was my first rainbow trout of my life and he gave them the bottle and they said why don't you have a drink with us Al and I couldn't believe that he was going to do this. I started, I remember I started getting physically sick to my stomach. And now the family was racing to some sort of a bad conclusion, and everyone was powerless to stop it. Um, I was so angry with my dad. I, I, I was in my freshman year of high school, and, and I had this sharp, icky tongue of a freshman, and I said to my, I remember saying to my dad, so you mean to tell me that you're going to flush this family down the toilet just to get another drink in your gullet? Boy, he picked me up with his right arm about a foot off the ground, cocked his left arm, and I thought, well, this is it. I was up against the cement, <laughs> you know. And he put me down, ne 
That was the only time he ever even looked like he was going to do that to me. And uh, one day, my dad just left. Things were getting worse. And he said, I'm going to Washington where his dad lived. And his dad had done the same thing to grandma and my dad, his sister, and his other brother. He abandoned them, went to the West Coast, and now my dad was doing the same thing. And he said to my mother, I'm going to buy a big white house with a white picket fence around it, and I'm going to move you all here. And my mother knew that that was never going to happen. Please don't leave, she said. She begged him on that day. I have six growing children, two, three in, in junior high, one in high school, uh, two more in grade school. You're the disciplinarian. You can't, I can't do it. But he, he left. And it probably would have helped if my aunt and uncle didn't meet, see him. They pulled up right next to him in the car that my uncle sold him. And there was another woman scooched up right next to him with her hand on his leg. What an icky thing for mom to find out. And uh, boy, instead of his leaving bringing me any relief, it plunged me deeper into anger. And those high school years were really bad years. And so this brings me to the summer of 19, uh, the summer I graduated from high school, 1976. 67, excuse me. And a friend invited me to church, back to that church that, we, that loved us and were so kind to us after my dad did this. Uh, this murder. And I, I walked into the church, listened to the message. He gave an altar call. I remember I was sitting right about there, and I came and knelt down at the altar right about over here. And I, I was never more sincere in my entire life than I was on that day, that night. And I... Pastor Hicks preached, I committed my life to Christ. That's my wife telling me. It's getting near time. <laughs> so, so sincere. And I remember that I stood up and I was going to walk back to my pew. I was a clean, forgiven person. I felt like a million bucks except for one thing that God completely did. He put in my heart, before I got back to my pew, he put in my heart the desire to see my father, tell my father I loved him, and ask him to forgive me. And I, whoa, so um, what, what God did, he was starting a brand new work in my life from the inside out, he was radically changing me. And the worst thing going in my life was my rotten relationship with my dad. And God said, let's fix it. So it's not easy to, you know, to fix something right away because my mother, first of all, 
thought I was nuts. You know, as good as she was, she was not a lemon. <laughs> um, my mother said, but it's 99 plus percent your dad's fault. It's not your fault at all. And I said, then, Mom, I want to take care of the 1% that's my fault. And, oh, she just didn't get it. And if you ever want to get out of something that God tells you to do, leave it to the family. Family will get you out of it right away. You know, some, one family member said, that's so radical. You don't have to be that radical. But God had put it in my heart to ask forgiveness. So... I, this took some time, it didn't happen until the next summer, I wrote my dad and said, I want to come out. And he sent me the money to come on the Greyhound bus. Do you know how many times the Greyhound bus stops from eastern Wisconsin to the west coast? Whoa. And uh, I thought I was never going to get there, but finally we rolled into Bellingham, uh, near the Puget Sound, and he was going to drive me the rest of the way. He lived on the Puget Sound, six miles from Canada. And, you know, I'm sitting in Wisconsin. My face is all scrunched up, and I'm mad at him, and I just want to... I got this poopy dad, and nothing's right. And, and my dad is living in Washington, having the time of his life, fishing and doing all this stuff. And so... I, I, I just was so excited. We had this long drive yet, and I just thought, I'm going to dump the truck right now, standing in the parking lot of the Greyhound bus depot in, in Bellingham, Mount Baker in the background, snow-capped, beautiful. And I said to Dad, Dad, and he, he got nervous when he saw that I was serious. And I said, Dad, I'm sorry, and he goes, it's okay, it's okay. Everything's okay. And I said, Dad, you got to listen to every word that I say, and then I'm going to ask you a question. So he goes, okay. I said, will you forgive me for the mean, rotten, nasty things I said to you? Will you forgive me for my rotten, foul attitude and my sheer, utter disrespect for you as a father. And he looked at my feet, he looked at the mountain behind, and then he looked me right in the eye, and he said, I forgive you. It was a great moment, but then he said something that I wasn't expecting. You know what he said? But I haven't been the best dad either. Boy, that was the understatement of the year, you know. <laughs> and uh, he said, but I haven't been the best dad either. Will you forgive me? And I said, I forgive you. And we are not a hugging family. We never were. And we just stood there and hugged and embraced. And it was one of the best moments of my entire life. I'm sure at my, on my deathbed, I'm going to be thinking about that as one of the best things that ever happened. I can relate to good old Jacob and, and, and good old Esau on that great moment. I can relate to that. And I was the first sibling who got back in, in uh, um, 
relationship with him. Eventually, all my brothers and sisters did. And um, my dad, uh, that was in 1968 uh, when I went out to visit him. He lived 10 more years, and then he died in a hotel fire, saving, trying to save somebody's life. He got him to the, the exit, which was deadbolt, locked shut, very illegal. And, uh, and he perished. And I, but I believe he called out to God. And uh, that is the most wonderful thing, one of the most wonderful things. My marriage is one of them. My children's birth at the end of your life is God speaking to somebody here about asking forgiveness from somebody. If he is, I would like to pray with you. Um, and I would like to ask God, Almighty God, would you move upon this wonderful congregation? Oh Lord, if you are speaking to someone about asking forgiveness or extending forgiveness like Esau did, Lord, will you speak to their hearts? And it's not an easy thing to do. And my, but Jesus, will you help them and, and bless them? And thank you for this wonderful church. And thank you for Pastor Andy and Christy. God bless them as they're away. Bring them back to pastor these dear people. Oh, God, in your wonderful name I pray, amen. My wife wants to give out a disclaimer at this point. She said, you know, forgiveness might not be as easy for other people as it was for you. And, and I think because I was able to be obedient, extending forgiveness has always been easy for me. But she said it's not for everyone. So she read this book, I hate to read, but it's... <laughs> Total forgiveness. And if you want to buy a candle, because some people were sexually hurt badly, and for them to go to that person, you know, it's not easy. And there, there are ways to do it. But if you want to talk to my wife, um, Total Forgiveness by R.T. Kendall. There, I did a disclaimer. Would you guys do me a favor and let's honor Bruce this morning and just tell him thank you, how much we appreciate his transparency. Everybody can stand, that's good. You know, one of the things that we, I, I want to take a second, would you guys do, we talk about this in our family a lot, and sometimes I get credit for certain things, but in reality, my wife does almost every good thing in our family. And so would you guys just take a second and let's, let's honor Sherry as well. Let's give it up for her. Now, for those of you guys that don't know, these guys are cheerleaders of our pastors. They have been a part of Launching Echo from the beginning. They've invested in Andy and Christy. They are overseers of our church. And we are so, so grateful for you guys. Thank you so much for being a part it, of our it's church. It's our blessing. Uh, love <laughs> they it. bless us more. I love <laughs> you know, I've been thinking about something this week. And I think this speaks right to it, which was, you know, my son, my oldest turned 17 this week. And I got to be honest, that feels like a blink of an eye. I still remember leaving the hospital with him. I still remember, you know, him as a baby. And then all of a sudden he's just a man and I don't really know what to do with it. We, this week we lost uh, a member of our neighborhood really tragically. 
Uh, and then just yesterday, uh, a real hero of faith for me personally passed away. And what it reminds me is that time is short and that this life is fragile. So I just, I wonder if today, this isn't an opportunity for us to, to just be reminded of the power of forgiveness, the power of forgiveness of self, the power of God's forgiveness and the power of us to forgive others. And one of the things we like to do as a church is we like to say a prayer together. And this prayer is just an opportunity for us to seek out God and his forgiveness of us. So as we say this prayer together, it's just an opportunity to let go a little bit and trust God a little more. And so uh, if we can get that up on the screen, that would be awesome. Otherwise, I'll just go off memory if I need to. All right, we're good. You guys say this with me. Jesus, I surrender. I have more questions than answers, but I choose to follow you anyway. I acknowledge that you lived, you died, and you rose again, all with us in mind. I accept the rescue that you offer. Save me and lead me in Jesus' name and his authority. Jesus, help us to be people that are forgivers, people that are going to let go of our hurt and trust you in these circumstances and become people who forgive. Move in our lives, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank God. 
God is doing today. Come on. Yeah.